Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. I'm Perry Marshall. I'm here with Scott Ransom, and we are here to talk about his book, And It Was So. And I have this book because a very, very random friend that I have not talked to in several years who lives in Ohio gifted it to me. It showed up in the mail. Her name is Joy Sherfy, And she said, Perry and Laura, I think you'll like this book. Okay. And like Joy is, she's not a close friend, not somebody I would expect to just send me a book, but she's a friend of Scott's. And, and I dipped in, I was like, oh, this book is pretty good. And so I have Scott here to talk about it. And uh, he is a veteran of the medical device industry. He's on the faculty at the University of Washington, Seattle. He's the director of innovation at the Center for Neurotechnology and is a consultant for the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health. So he's no slouch. And he teaches Sunday school. So wears a lot of hats. And here's the question that we are going to discuss today. There's a lot of people of faith who listen to this podcast, but there's a lot of people not of faith. And there's a lot of people who wouldn't ordinarily think that there is any use for biblical scholarship and theology when considering questions like, where did life come from? Where did man come from? Most, A lot of people think that that ship sailed 150 years ago, and that whole conversation is just totally obsolete. And Scott would beg to differ. And this is a very carefully written book. I can tell from the level of scholarship that it took many years to write this book. And so I said, Scott, I want to get you on, and I want to talk about this book assuming that the people in the audience are not religiously or theologically minded. And we'll let the people who are just sort of listen in. And I want to hear from the horse's mouth why a person should consider these kinds of questions and maybe take seriously when otherwise they would have just let it go. So love your book. Love the fact that you're here. Why don't you tell us, there's a story that goes way back of when this started to be a question for you. So I'd like you to just tell us what that story is. Sure. Well, Perry, thanks for thanks for having me. And uh, I'm glad that we both uh, know Joy. She didn't send me your book. She said you had one out there that I absolutely had to read. And when I ordered it, I got your, uh, what I found on Amazon was your your book on marketing and, and using Google. And so I got that. I thought, well, maybe she thinks he might help me market my book. And uh, only after talking with you briefly uh, uh, a couple months ago, did I say there's another book that's even more relevant. I mean, it absolutely was. So I got that and I've got it right okay. here and I'm, I'm making my way through it, but I've only recently received it. So uh, thanks for having me on. Happy to talk about this. But you're right. The um, the, the book did take some time to write and uh, much longer than the writing of it was the researching of it. And the question you ask here is, is why does it matter to, you know, uh, people who aren't of faith is a hard one. The much easier question is why should it matter to people of faith? Because that's, that's the road that I came on. And you, you asked about the story behind it. And, and that road started as a child attending Sunday school myself, growing up in a Christian household, and, but also liking science. And, and my background, as you said, is very technical. I'm an electrical engineer myself by education, although nowadays it would be called biomedical engineering, but they didn't have that when I was uh, going through school. So I'm very technical, love science at an early age, and, uh, and had this inherent conflict, which is not rare amongst Christians, that what I was learning about science in school differed dramatically from what I was reading in scripture and, and hearing at church. And the people that I asked about this, pastors and my parents and, and Sunday school teachers, while 
good intention didn't really have satisfying answers. It was a lot of talk of, well, Genesis, the creation story in particular, it's really a metaphor or it's poetic. And, and the takeaway is that God loves us. And, and that is all, you know, could all be true. And God certainly does love us, I believe. But in terms of a, a scientific argument, it, it was it was wanting. And like many people, I put that question off to the side and said to myself, you know, there's some reconciliation. Somehow those two things, faith and science, work themselves out. I don't know what the answer is, but I trust that the answer is out there. And, and that got me through high school. That got me into college until very early in my college career. Uh, you know, I was a member of a fraternity. And I, you know, I lived differently than some of my fraternity brothers did. And they noticed that. And they said, what's up? And I would explain my faith and they would be interested in that. And one friend in particular said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go read this Bible you're talking about. And I was elated, right? And I remember that night going to bed thinking, where should I tell him to start? You know, Mark is a great, you know, great gospel and a great place to start. The letter of Paul to the Romans really captures the Christian tenets well. And I was thinking about all these places he might start reading. But it was me at the same time in his bunk, he was reading the Bible. And he started on page one, which is where anyone would open a book to and, and start reading. But the first two chapters he he got through, you know, the creation account in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything from there. He only got to the end of chapter two and he came in my room the next day and said, I no, I, I don't believe any of this. If this couldn't have happened the way this book says it happened. And if this part of scripture isn't true, why should I believe any any other parts? And that is absolutely a valid question. And it brought up all those things that I had put on the shelf uh, as a younger child brought them to the forefront. And, uh, and so the research that I did in trying to answer that question for myself was for that very reason. How can I answer it for myself? The Bible says we ought to be able to give a reason for our faith. And, and I felt like I, I wasn't able to do that. So, but all that research I did was really to answer the question for myself. So if asked, I could, I could have a defense for it. And, and that research took some 20 years, and it wasn't just reading books. It was, as you know, you got to dig down into the real data, you know, reading journal articles, talking to researchers. And, and thankfully, I'm in a university environment, an academic environment, and I'm able to, to do a lot of that. But, um, but I finally, after doing all that, again, 20-some years, I, uh, I, I got to a place where I'm like, you know, when you go back to the original Hebrew and you actually look what it says, I do see that reconciliation. I do see alignment between the two. And I'm like, good, I'm done. I, I got my answer. I'm all set. And as I uh, talked to different people and led home groups and taught adult Sunday school classes and people would ask me and this topic would come up and I would, I would give just highlights of what I found. Everyone said, well, you got to share that. You got to write that down. And I, uh, People used to ask me, what Bible character could I most relate to? And it was always Luke. You know, he was a physician. He was a documentarian. He would, you know, he would write detailed accounts. And that kind of felt like me. But nowadays, I kind of feel like I relate to Jonah more. You know, God said, do this thing. And Jonah's like, yeah, no, not me. I, that's, that's, and that was me. Everyone's like, you got to write this down. Like, no, no, I'm not. that's not me. I'm not an author. And, and it's a, it's a controversial topic and I'm not a controversial person. So I thought that's the end. And, you know, the spirit was working on me and uh, I remember praying, you know, I, I just, I can't write a book. I I'm not an author. I commute two hours, one way to work every day at, at the university. I have no time. I have no time. And that was always my fallback. A lot of kids, a lot of responsibilities. No, can't do it. And I remember praying and uh, that, if I didn't have to do that commute, if something happened, I didn't have to commute four hours every day, then I would invest that time into writing. That was January 2020. And little did I know, two months later, I wouldn't be commuting anymore. Uh, the, the world would be effectively shut down and all of us would be working from home. And there I was faced with, uh, with what I had prayed and what I had committed to. And so that was the genesis of writing that text. and. Uh, and sharing it. And then, and then I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm finally done. I did it. I went to Nineveh. 
it's in your hands now. And God's like, no, no, you're still not done. I need you to invest in, in promoting. And I need you to tell people about it. And, and so when you invited me on here, I, I was reluctantly happy to accept <laughs> the invitation. So there's some phrase you have, like whether it's something about whether your parents were, would be more upset if you're reading Playboy or reading dinosaur <laughs> books. Could you explain that story? <laughs> you know, like a lot of kids who are interested in science, I would check out books from the library on dinosaurs. I was fascinated with them as a kid, as many kids are. And uh, and in every dinosaur book in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, had the very first chapter was a chapter on evolution, or if not the first chapter, somewhere. And my mom would, uh, you know, would find me with these books, and and she would just open them up when she was gathering laundry or whatever, and 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 was just shocked and horrified by what she saw that I was reading. And I would always say, "Well, mom, I skipped the first chapter. I'm not, you know, embracing evolution. Please don't think I'm going to hell." But no, that was that was kind of her feeling that. And she wasn't alone in this. The idea that if you espoused evolution, then maybe your faith was in jeopardy. Because, and it's very true that uh, a lot of people uh, on both sides point to evolution and say, well, evolution uh, it takes away the need for a God. And so, therefore, evolution is truly the enemy. And, and so that was a... Uh, that was the stance that, that she took. And, and at one point, she even grounded me from, from nonfiction books altogether from the library. I could no longer check out anything nonfiction, which wow. I, you know, I give her grief for that. But she it was great. I read things like Hardy Boys and Black Beauty and all the things that young kids are supposed to be reading. And, uh, and it was great. It gave me love for literature that I, I might not have had otherwise. But, but the, the, the sentiment was, was there that... Uh, evolution was something to be feared and, and maybe avoided because it was uh, it was the enemy of the existence of God. So she could keep you from reading that when you were 11 years old, but she couldn't keep your college buddy from asking a question about Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. That's that's very true. And it's a, a question that I was glad that he was asking. I, I think it's whether you are a Christian or a person of faith or or not, having a genuine interest in in what's out there and, and what does it say is is really important. Uh, you know, you asked why why should it matter to uh to a non-Christian whether or not that the Bible is true, you know, whether or not the creation account in Genesis is is true. And I there really are. There's so many reasons, right? And I don't know how long you program you've got, but there's so many reasons. But they boil down really to two two classes, I think. One is around just the pursuit of of scientific truth, the idea that we ought to be exploring and and assessing and and bringing a uh, um, a critique to to what we're encountering. And I think the other has to do with veracity of of scripture knowing uh, that whether or not the Bible is true, whether or not it can be trusted. And that's uh, that's key also. You know, in the, in the first camp, I, I opened the book with the story of the statues of Easter Island. I think everyone has either heard of or, or seen photos of these enormous statues that line the shores uh, of Easter Island. And these things weigh many, many tons. And folks uh, for hundreds of years have wondered, how did they get there? How did they, they're called carved from volcanic rock. The volcano is many, many miles away, but what was the method of transport? How did they get from the volcano to the shores? And when you talk to the native people, that the island lore is that the statues walked without legs. And of mm -hmm. course you look at that and you dismiss it right off the bat. That, that's myth. And, and scientists and, and explorers and others try to figure out, you know, could they have rolled them on logs? Well, no, there's not really trees on the island to do that. There's not trees to make cranes to set them upright. One researcher thought maybe it was sweet potatoes that grow on the island and they smash them to make a, a frictionless kind of slide to get them. No, that doesn't work either to try that. And then uh, not that many years ago, uh, two researchers, Hunt and Lippo, actually looked at the the statues that had been abandoned on the way. 
there were statues that didn't make it all the way to the shores, but they had fallen over in route. And the fact that they had fallen over means that they were probably being transported upright like this, right? Wait, wait a minute. They fell over like they're at the bottom of the ocean? No, no, no. On, along on the path the from the volcano to the shore. Oh. They, they were they're abandoned on the side of the, the road. Okay. Um, and, and interestingly enough, anytime there's an incline in the road and they would find these road moy is what they call them. Road moy that were abandoned on an incline were always laying on their backs. But if the road was going downhill and something bad happened, the statue was always laying on their face. So the implication then is that these statues are being transported vertically face forward. And these are searchers uh, from University of Hawaii, uh, or Hawaii rather, and, uh, and California, looked at the, these road moy and found some differences to their counterparts that were on the shores. They looked at their eye sockets. Instead of having nicely formed eyes like the statues on the shores, these were like gouged deep sockets, which was interesting. The base of these road moy, these ones that were abandoned, was different also. It was much heavier, so the center of gravity was lower, and it was rounded in front such that the statue would have leaned forward if it were standing upright, whereas the, the moy on the shores are, are straight vertical. And so they started wondering, well, are these differences somehow a clue to how they were transported? And the answer was yes. They eventually figured out that, you know, these deep notches in the eyes were actually locations for ropes to be tied. And that if you got a uh, team of 20 people holding a rope on the left side of the statue and a team of 20 people on the right side of the statue and a team of another 20 people holding the statue up from behind, then if you do a heave-ho motion with these ropes, the rounded D-shaped front of this statue would actually cause it to roll back and forth <laughs> like this. And, and you can look online to see the videos because these, these researchers actually created a concrete dummy of these statues and attached the ropes and had the eye notches just like there in the front curve D, just like these road moy had. And you can see them using ropes, actually making the statue go like this up the hill. And there's no way to describe the motion except as walking without legs. So what was discarded as a, as a myth in local folklore actually was an accurate description of how the natives had gotten these statues from the volcano to the shores. So, you know, imagine, you know, the hundreds of years of off and on research to figure out how this happened could have been saved if researchers had at the start said, well, maybe there's a, some truth there that we could expand upon and, and go from. Not to say all myths are true, because that's, right. that's not the case. But in some cases, just disregarding a, a folklore or myth could lead you down along uh, a rabbit trail that you spend some time recovering from. That is a brilliant story. So continue because you're starting to unpack reasons why a secular person might want to take the biblical narrative ser more seriously. Sure. You know, that, that's generally one class of reason is that, that pursuit of scientific truth. The other that I mentioned is really around the veracity of Scripture. Imagine, you know, like my friend said, if the first two chapters of Genesis aren't true, then how can the rest of the Bible be true? Why should I believe it at all? I think the converse is also true. If you find the first two chapters of Genesis around the creation of the universe, of the earth, and of the creatures that inhabit it, if that is true, and, and keep in mind, it ought not be true, right? I mean, the guy that wrote it, uh, Moses, some believe others wrote it, but, but if Moses wrote it 3,500 years ago and got it right, what does that say about the story? And what does that say about the rest of Scripture then? I think just like you can say, oh, if the first two chapters are, are wrong, I can't accept the rest of the Bible. If the first two chapters are right, when by all accounts they shouldn't be, then there's it's worth you know giving the benefit of the doubt to the rest of scripture and 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 giving it an ear. And I think that is a I think that's a very compelling reason because if it's true, if you're a non-Bible believing person, a person without faith, an atheist or or whatever camp you fall into, but you're then confronted with some evidence that what the Bible is saying is actually true, that really ought to be life-changing. Because the Bible is not a benign document, right? I mean, the Bible makes some striking 
assertions that if they're true, they are life-changing for all of us. I mean, imagine if you you learned that that aliens had come and visited Earth and you had knowledge that, yeah, that actually did happen. How that would change our culture, that would change, that would change so many things about our lives, right? But this is no different than that. The idea that that a being created us, and not just for for fun, but out of love. There's some expectation of how we relate to that being and how we relate to each other in light of that being. That's nothing but but life changing. And so I, I think for those two reasons, there's utility, and we'd be remiss if we didn't really examine scripture. And and God asks to do that, right? I mean, He expects scripture to be be examined and uh and to prove it's uh, it's worth and so i think it's in onus of all of us to uh to look at that and and for christians you know i said at the beginning the answer to that question is so much easier for christians knowing what actually happened how god actually did it uh there's revelation in that and i think it's uh you know you know when you you eat some soup and you like the soup that's really great soup that's that's good but when you actually know about the ingredients in the soup and how the chef prepared them and, and where the tomatoes were grown and the care that the gardener gave them and the nutrients that they absorb from the soil, you know all these things about the making of the soup, you appreciate it so much better and it comes alive. And I, I think that understanding the science of creation, it's really an act of worship of the, the creator himself. So I think for no matter what camp you're in, I think there are, are many reasons to examine the validity of the scripture. So when a Christian friend sends me a book like this, which happens from time to time, sometimes I'll flip through the book and I'll be like, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, not one of these. Oh, no. So what page was it in my book where you got there? Oh, well, <laughs> what I did with your book was I'd like, oh, yeah, this guy knows science. Oh, yeah, he, he's just not like th- there are a lot of books a little like this that force fit the scientific narrative into the way that a seven-year-old would read Genesis. And they just, they just smash the, they smash science flat in order to fit it. And those jam stuff in. And it really irks me when they do that because I've gone too deep into science, but you're not one of these people. There's some very serious science here, but there's also some serious Hebrew scholarship. And so what I can see that you're doing is you're twisting the Rubik's cube and you're saying, is there a reasonable and elegant way to bring the biblical narrative in harmony with what we know about the scientific narrative that does not require massive origami maneuvers? Because there are a lot of ancient myths. I don't have any idea how you would make them fit. Like, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Yes, I understand it has all kinds of archetypal things in it. And there are psychological reasons why a myth takes a certain form. But I would never attempt to make it line up with a modern scientific narrative. I, I don't know that that would ever be possible. But that's not true with the biblical creation story. Even on the surface, it gets a number of things remarkably right. But then there's some other things. So would you be able to walk me through some of the dots that you connected and what you felt you had to have prioritized certain things? Well, I think these things are really important. Maybe some of these other things we'll have to wait for later. But how did you go through that process? You're exactly right, uh, Perry. One of the things that irks me is so often you hear a secular commentator referred to the creation count in Genesis as just another, you know, ancient Middle Eastern myth. And sometimes they'll even go as far as say it's a derivative of 
Gilgamesh and, and the Babylonian tales that you're referring to there, which that always, it makes me frustrated because when you actually read the tale of Gilgamesh, you actually look at it, you go, well, there it's night and day different from the creation count in Genesis. Where's right. this derivation coming from? Right. Uh, Gilgamesh may have been written down earlier, but, you know, and, and it, some say, well, it was written on seven tablets and creation sort of has seven days-ish, so it's, you know, derivative. No. Um, I think you can I think you can break all of those arguments uh, pretty easily when you look at them. But, you know, the prioritization they refer to, you know, it's starting out, there was some low hanging fruit. And, and a lot of people have written about the low hanging fruit. You know, for example, you know, Yom is Yom day as in a 24 hour period of time. And so therefore the creation was a literal six days long or as Yom referred to a longer span of time. And, and some of that was easy to do because, again, many have written about that. And so yep. I think anyone can look at that, no Hebrew scholarship necessary, and find a lot of supporting evidence for the fact that in the Genesis account, and really in most all of the Old Testament, Yom referred to a span of time that was uh, it was bounded, you know, had a general start and a general end. But it's just like the way we use day now. You know, back in my day, high schoolers didn't have cell phones, right? That's a period of time that started somewhere when I was young and ends somewhere, you know, when I was less young. So it's not indefinite, but it's it's a fuzzy start and end, and it's some span of time. Yeah. That's that's how they used day as well. Unless you were talking about the number of days, you know, he traveled five days. Well, there, you know, it's a kind of 24-hour period. So, you know, using clues like that and, and context, which Hebrew really requires a contextual understanding to discern the actual meaning of words, it, it's so context dependent. So that, that stuff was, was fairly easy. The harder stuff was, and let me preface this by saying I am not a Hebrew scholar. I, I've not gone to, to any classes to learn not only Hebrew, but, but uh, you know, language analysis. This is really looking at published transliterations, Strong's Concordance, looking at resources that anyone mm -hmm. can, can find easily. I didn't have to go to a library in Alexandria to, <laughs> to look this stuff up. Just even uh, the local libraries and online, I was able to find uh, so much of this. And then verifying it with others who, who were Hebrew scholars. Interesting enough, when I would talk to them so often, it was like, well, yes, that could be true. But this other thing could also be true. There's a lot of, you know, as a scientist and as an English speaker, I like detailed answers. I, I like a, a truth. And uh, and studying the Hebrew, it, it's 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 a language that is very uh, colloquial. It's very context plays such a huge role. It's hard to pin down, which I think in part was what led to some of the challenges in translating a language like that into English which has a little bit more precision in how words are used. So I think that's that's a part of it. But going back and, and looking at the Hebrew, once I started doing that, there was no stopping because every time I would look into definitions and look into structure and look into grammar, there was what was revealed was so new to me, things I hadn't heard before that it was uh, it was just astounding. For example, uh, just to throw one out there, the uh, you know when you look at the sequence of of animal life being developed on Earth in Genesis, it talks about things that really are are like insects coming, and then and then you look at great whales being formed, and then you get to mammals and and beasts of the field. And as we all learned in school, you know, great whales. They're a mammal, and they descended from from land animals. So having them appear first before mammals was odd, and having them appear right after insects is a little bit odd. And how does that even work out? But when you look at the Hebrew, you know, the words that got translated "great whale," the word "great" is the Hebrew word for. And this is great. Hebrew words have so many meanings, and it's so rich. But the word "great" is from a Hebrew word that means long, tall, loud, and haughty. Okay, unique word, and uh, and and you know, I asked my I, I taught Awana for many many years, and I asked my class one time, "Haughty, what do you guys think haughty means?" And the number one answer I always give was, "With attitude, attitude," and that's that's all right. So, and then the the word for whale is a Hebrew word that means monster. 
Mm. And and I I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I've gotten to watch whales many times uh, out on boats in Puget Sound, and and I've seen many whales. And and they are long, and they can be loud. I never got the sense that they're haughty, and and I wouldn't describe them as monsters. I mean, maybe if you were in a rowboat trying to harpoon one, things would get pretty scary. But <laughs> but you know, but when you look at it, it today. If you were doing the sequence and you went from, okay, we've got arthropods, insects, you know, lower forms of life. And then later we've got mammals and in between long, tall, loud, haughty monsters, we might say, well, maybe they're talking about dinosaurs, (laughs) long, tall, loud, haughty monsters, dinosaurs. It fits in that sequence. But the first dinosaur bone was discovered a couple hundred years after the writing of the King James Version. Yeah. And, and once right. Great Whales was there, Great Whales was never coming out uh, of that that passage in that sequence, right? So and it biases, it just pushes everybody's thinking to that mm-hmm. automatically without question. Mm-hmm. And then it goes in there and then never gets re-examined. Exactly. It becomes tradition at that point. And to question it is anathema. It's it's what are you doing? And and in writing this book, I I I'm not presupposing to create a new uh, a new translation. Uh, you know, others have suggested, hey, you know, you should have an appendix in there where you 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 do the different wordings to compile an actual new translation. I you know I didn't, didn't do that because tradition is important, and I get that, and uh, that wasn't my intent to write a new translation. But you could easily do that, and I think what you would get would make a lot of sense. And it would answer questions that, uh, you know, 11-year-old Scott had when he's reading, well, you know, how did great whales come before land animals and uh, and, and right after arthropods? How did that get in there? And um, things like that, when you look at the original Hebrew, and that's a little bit different from, from other books that have been written on these subjects, is, is kind of going back to the original Hebrew. I just, I just want to know, what did it actually say? And does that give me a clue to help reconcile all these these conflicts that I was seeing growing up and conflicts that my friend had the first time he read read the Bible. I'd like to chime in on one reason I think it's very valuable to be doing this. And it's because in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, it says, we hold these things to be self-evident that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights in their life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are some of the most important words in Western civilization. In all the modern governments and notions of human equality and human rights uh, really stem from that. And it's hugely informed the way all of the world operates. And, And it's an incredibly valuable it's a priceless notion that we all hopefully roughly agree on is true. And it's in our court systems, it's in our laws, and it's the way that we treat each other. Well, in, in the book Democracy in America, which was written in 1835, Alexis de Tocqueville, a French guy, says, so where did they get the, that idea? And he lands on... It, really partly in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, and partly in Genesis, where man is made in God's image. And that, in that reading of the story, the Genesis story is not just telling us where we came from, but it's telling us what we're supposed to be and what kind of world we're supposed to be creating. Now, when you discard that and you say, it's survival of the fittest and natural selection, you have implicitly discarded 2,000 years of civilization and gone back to animal behavior. And I'm going to say as an intellectual, 
So if you're going to discard all of the theologians and all of the philosophers and all of the lawyers and all of the thinkers who worked out these ideas over the last 2,000 years and tell them that your Darwin story is superior, well, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. Because the same people that want to throw that away, they want to keep their human rights and they want to keep their human dignity. But they don't have a rational argument to support it. And the fact that these stories appear to be in tension with each other is a real problem for a thinking person. So I might be getting a step ahead of you, but it seems to me that this is one of the reasons why you want to address these questions. Because if we can get these stories to work well together, we might actually understand more about what it means to be a human and more about what kind of society we ought to be building. Am I reading you correctly? It, you are, and I, I agree with you, and I disagree with you both. You're exactly right in that reconciling these two accounts, uh, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about the, you know, the implications are astounding. If the Bible is truly true, if you can trust the veracity of it, then the implications for our life and everyone's lives are, are astounding. It, it's life-changing. It's for the very reasons you're describing. I mean, it it does speak to, you know, who we are in, in God's image. How should we be relating to each other and to that God? And it, and it has implications for every avenue of our lives. You're, you are absolutely right about that. At the same time, I think that for some, and I write about this a little bit in the, in the book, you know, worldviews, something that all of us have, and, and, and we carry them around with us without even knowing that we have them. And they color and, and influence everything that we see, everything that we hear. It filters for us what we, we see and hear. And I think that uh, in, in, in the West, especially, we don't talk about worldviews. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hone my worldview today. I'm going to be a little bit more open and thinking in this direction. It takes a lot of work to change how we think. And, and some of the stuff we're doing at the Center for Neurotechnology, you know, once you get to adulthood, you've got about maybe 15% of your, your cortex that is maybe malleable at that point and you can change. So it's, it's hard work to change your habits, your way of thinking, your, your worldview, the older that, that we get. And, and to that end, I think that you look at how worldviews influence what data we accept as true or that we want to accept as true. And I think for many people, I could write a million books or a million people could write a book about the reconciliation between scripture and science and even prove that, yeah, the things that happen in the Bible are true. And I think that there would still be a group of people that would say the implications for that, that are the implications of that for my life, I'm not comfortable with, and I will find a way to not believe it. And, and we see that in, in many cases, right? Um, you know, looking at the world today, looking at the newspaper, looking at fake news, looking at all kinds of sources, there are more and more groups than than I would have thought that are going to hold on to a worldview in despite evidence of the contrary. And uh, and so I, I agree and disagree. I, I think that, yeah, the, the reconciliation between science and faith, I think, is an amazing thing and has astounding implications for all of us. And yet I don't think it is necessarily the thing that would convince everyone that yeah. Oh, I, I ought to accept this. I ought to be open to those implications for my life. So knowing that some people are never going to go there, even if you connected every dot, mm -hmm. you know that, but you still wrote the book anyway. I did. <laughs> I did. So I was Jonah, remember, I was running away. Yeah. <laughs> I tried not to. <laughs> but there's somebody you have in mind when you wrote this book. Who is that person and what do you want them to know? Yeah. You know, the, the person is the person like me. You know, the, the reason I did all this research, like I said, was, was because I didn't have a good answer for it growing up. And then, you know, my friends who would ask me didn't have an answer. And, and it was always uncomfortable for me. I, I, I didn't 
continue on with that story to say that that many years later, one of my friends who was in that boat, he, he died from cancer. And I realized at that, that time that, wow, we, you know, we, never, we never really concluded that conversation. Uh, we never really came to, and he died without faith. And I, I thought that's, that's on me in a way, that I didn't actually pursue this to the point where I could answer his objections uh, uh, intelligently without hand-waving, without talking about metaphors and, and, and without being a, you know, what I had heard in my, you know, sixth grade Sunday school class. So that's when I really started digging in. His death was really a trigger for me to dig in and answer this. And I, as I look at the world now, and as I, I talk to my friends who are intelligent, oftentimes they're Christians, oftentimes they're not Christians. I have friends across the spectrum I see that there's this disconnect with for a lot of people. There's a lot of people who, like me, felt like, well, I believe the Bible. And I believe the Genesis account of creation is true. I know science, and I know what science tells me there. And I get that the two don't connect, but somehow I have just put that on the shelf. I'm sure there's got to be an answer somewhere. I don't know what it is, so I'm going to put it on the shelf. And like me, there's this tension that exists there. And it comes into play in so many ways, Perry. It comes into play when we start talking about the ethics of, you know, stem cell research or, mm. uh, you know, or, or, you know, different cancer treatments. There's so many things in our technology today and in our medical arsenal today that bring to the fore these kinds of questions. And that if, if you don't have a nice resolution, if your dots aren't connected, I think it puts us on an uneasy footing in addressing those ethical challenges. And for a lot of Christians today, not all of them, but for a lot of Christians today, the answer to that is to remove oneself from the conversation, to sit on the sidelines, to ground their kids from checking out nonfiction books. <laughs> whatever whatever the, the, uh, the reaction is, it sidelines us from that debate. And to an extreme, some people become anti-scientific, right? Science is an authoritarian thing. Authority is inherently wrong or evil, and therefore, because science is related to that, we're not going to uh, engage in science. And I think that's absolutely the wrong course for Christians to take, because as more and more of our society is technologically based, as more and more of our, our medicine and our, our politics and our military and everything else revolves around technology, if we as Christians sideline ourselves from science, we can't participate in that debate. We become unintellectual when really we ought to be participating in the debate more than ever before. You know, the people who know science are going to be the ones who are making political decisions for us. They're going to be the ones that are deciding how new treatments are going to be used. They're going to be the ones deciding, you know, how is cloning explored and utilized to, to treat disease, you know? It's going to be, if Christians silent themselves from science, it's going to be non-Christians who are in the positions to be making all of those decisions. And I don't think that's the kind of world that we want. So I wrote it mainly to help a couple of things. One, to, to help people in my shoes connect those dots and, and get the resolution that I finally had and the truth that that brings, but also to help explain that the science really isn't the enemy. And as I said before, when you understand in many ways how the creator did the amazing things he did, when you understand how the cook made the wonderful soup, you mm -hmm. have a deeper appreciation for it. It's an act of worship. And importantly, understanding science and the enemy and that we can revel in what God created for us. That was my main intent is, is for Christians to see that Science is a good thing. God used science in his creation, and we ought to be thankful and worshipful in that. I really resonate. When I decided to write Evolution 2.0, it was 2009, and the reason that I made that decision was I was aghast, like beyond appalled at the state of the dialogue between science and faith. And it, it wasn't just what most people would hear on the surface when I say that. It, it was not only that, but when you went very deep into science, 
there were many, many scientists, scientists who were butchering science badly so as to make it appear that life is random and purposeless and meaningless. And to me, this was the worst kind of vandalism you could imagine because you're teaching it, you're teaching it in college classrooms, you're teaching it in textbooks, you're drilling it in people's heads, and it is a miserable way to see the world. Absolutely miserable and counterproductive to cure. You're not gonna cure cancer with a view like that. You're not gonna solve virus pandemics with a view like that. You're not gonna do good regenerative medicine and, and you're gonna do a bunch of really inhumane things. Like you talked about stem cells and cloning and all like we're going to just harvest human beings like organ factories and prolong. We're going to solve longevity with some God awful dystopian world. That's a lot closer than people realize. And you would know that better than anybody because of the work that you do. There's a lot of scary things that are going on. There are a lot of scary things that are going on, but there's also, you know, like any tool, there's some amazing things that could be done with them. Yes. And, and I'm a firm believer that society will use those tools best when everyone is at the table discussing them. Yes, absolutely. Why don't you give a couple of, before we close, a couple of really satisfying dots that connected for you in this book? Can you give me a couple examples where you're like, wow, I wish more people saw that this scriptural element and this piece of science go together really nicely. Like any way that you want to approach this, but what are a couple of things that you could share that just are really cool? Yeah. You know, one of them for me, I, I mentioned before was, was dinosaurs. You know, the, the word dinosaur is not found in any Bible. But the, the Hebrew words, long, tall, loud, haughty monster certainly is and <laughs> right in the proper sequence for where they the fossil record shows that they were on Earth. That to me was was really phenomenal for me. When I was reading those Hebrew words in the definition, my first thought was, oh, my gosh, they're talking about dinosaurs there. And Moses certainly didn't know about dinosaurs. You know, when you look at things like that, you know, another thing, too, that he talks about the fact, you know, God was hovering over the surface of the deep, and the deep there is roiling, surging masses of water that cover the entire planet because dry land didn't appear till later, right? Moses, a desert dweller, by the way, wrote that the earth was completely covered by a roiling, massive sea. He shouldn't have known that, mm -hmm. uh, but he did. And, and guess what? It turns out that, yes, there was absolutely a time in early Earth's history where it was completely covered. I see. And the earth was formless and void. There was no life on it. It was void. That's what the word void means. And it was formless. There were no valleys, mountains, all the things that we see. The earth was completely smooth initially by the formation of the moon. And there's a long story that I'm going to hear about how that happened. But the earth turned molten. And as it cooled and con congealed, it was smooth. And it was important that that happened because it allowed the iron to sink to the core of the earth. Being molten allowed us to have the core that we do that protects us with our electromagnetic field. We'd yeah. be dead from cosmic radiation if it were for that to protect the field. But the earth had to be molten for that. And as a result, it was smooth. It was a smooth ball. Water arrived, one single ocean covering the entire earth. And when it says the Lord was hovering over, the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep, that hovering is the same word that was used when talking about a hen sitting on its eggs. There was this expectancy. It was a hovering with expected intention. Something was going to happen. And I believe that that, you know, that sets the stage for all the rest of the account. You know, one of the things my friend came to me and said, you know, that he was dismissing Genesis and the rest of the Bible because he goes, you know, the earth came before the sun and moon. I mean, here's the earth and the sun and moon came later. Well, we know that's not true. That was one of his evidences that, yeah, the creation account was, was all wet. But when you look at it from that perspective, where God was hovering over the face of the deep, and that sets the perspective for the rest of the account, then it makes sense that at that moment in time in Earth's history, 
there was so much debris in the atmosphere. The sun wasn't fully ignited. There was a lot of debris between the earth and the sun still because things were still forming that it absolutely would have been dark. And as, you know, God said, let there be light. Well, as the atmosphere cleared, first thing that would happen is we'd start to see some ambient light. Just like on a really cloudy day, there's light, but there's no sun. You don't see the orb in the sky. We don't see that till chapters later. And likewise on the earth, we would have been able to see the sun from that perspective, the Lord hovering over the face of the deep. From that perspective, we would have seen the sun at a later point in time. When you read the Hebrew and you take things like that into consideration, then that whole account makes perfect sense. And again, like I said, it aligns with what we know and, and have only recently learned the fact that the whole earth was molten and, and the moon formed from that kind of cataclysmic explosion and and, and, and uh, collision that, that formed. We didn't really know that until after the Apollo program. And uh, and so a lot of this is recent stuff, yeah. but it, it ties those dots together in a way that you can read Genesis and go, yeah. Moses shouldn't have known all this, but he did. How could he have known it? And there's really only one answer to that. It was it was inspired by the one person who was there. God. Well, I agree. I think it's fantastic. And it was so by Dr. Scott Ransom. You can find it on Amazon. And Scott, how can people follow you, pay attention to you, keep up with your work? What would you like them to do to be able to do that? Yeah, we, we just got a website, uh, ransombooks.com. I'm happy to direct people there. We're going to start a blog on there. So if people have questions or want to discuss things, uh, there's so much we can talk about around this. And then that's going to be, the I think, the best spot for people to go and, and contribute there. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time today. And, and thank you for doing this. You know, we very often, we we do these things to satisfy our own questions and then people start coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, dude, like you got to make this more accessible. I loved your Sunday school class, but like it's already over and I, I can't explain it the way you just did. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Perry, thanks so much for having me. Always great talking to you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.